continue our journey uh, through the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, as he lays out for us the final chapter, if you will, in the epic uh, as God is redeeming the world, redeeming mankind back into himself. It's, uh, it's an exciting journey if you've come with us from Genesis to Revelation to see the handprints, the fingerprints of God as we work our way through. So tonight as we look, Revelation chapter 14, we're going to be looking again the second time at the 144,000 and a few more uh, clues as to who they are. It says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins, And it is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth was uh, no lie was found, for they were blameless. So we come to Revelation chapter 14, and we've been working our way through. Remember as we began the trumpets, we talked about that reality. What was the purpose of the trumpets? As the trumpets are blown, what are they? Warning, 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 right? There's, there's way worse things coming. There's way, there's, there's way crazier times still on the horizon. And then we do what John does. Remember I told you when John writes in his epistles, in his gospel, and here in Revelation, he is a composer. John writes like a songwriter. So if you notice when you read John, there's not necessarily a chronology, although there is an order. And as he works his way through his order, he's, he'll pause and come back and do a chorus. He'll go so far, pause, come back, sing a chorus. He'll stop and do a bridge. And then he'll go on again with, uh, with the rest of the song. And so that's how Revelation is laid out for us. We had six seals, right? And, and then we had uh, a pause, remember? A pause before the seventh seal. Curling back like he's singing a song. Then we come into the... The six trumpets, we have another pause at the end of six trumpets, right? As we look back over the events, a little closer look. When we come to chapter 14, <coughs> chapter 14 is a bridge in the song. A bridge in a song is a time when the, the song is going someplace different. It's trying to build, it's trying to build excitement, it's trying to build uh, um, just uh, the power of what's going on. And so... He begins with, we'll see it all the way through chapter 14, that ideal. He begins with 144,000. There's something special about them, and there's something special about Revelation chapter 14. They're not here. Revelation chapter 14, they're not on earth. Where does it say they are? They're standing before the throne of God. How many are there? 144,000. How many did they start with in chapter 7? 144,000. Did he lose any? Nope. He's got them all. He's got them all. He's got them all with him. So as we look at it, I just want you to see 
this bridge. Now he's going to give us some scenes from heaven. He's going to, he's going to show us a, a new song, a fresh song for the 144,000. He wants to build because we're, we're at the midway point, right? Of the tribulation, roughly. We're in the midway point. When the seventh trumpet sounds, that's actually the midway. The seventh trumpet lasts for the whole seven bowls. It's going to last over the rest of the judgment uh, that God is pouring out on the earth. So let's take a look. I want you to see, the first thing I want you to see here is the protection of God. I want you to see the protection of God. Revelation 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name, and his father's name written on their foreheads. The first thing that kind of jumps out in this section for me is that they are in the presence of the Lamb. They're with him. I love that concept, that idea of being with Christ, of being with him. I think it was Soren Kierkegaard who said that if we can, I'm not, it's not a quote, so don't hold me to this. He says it a lot better one of them philosopher writer guys but he says basically if i have a focus of how i want to end that helps me know how i want to begin where do you want to end where do you want your story to end where do you want your life to end where do you where where are we trying to get to how does paul say it i'm not spending my time looking backwards where are you looking i'm looking forward right i'm looking at jesus and i'm i just keep going and I'm going to stumble, and I'm going to fall, and I'm going to fail along the way. But when I get back up, I don't turn around and, and, and live in the past. What do I do? He says, I put my eyes forward, and I move forward. That's, that's the idea that Soren Kierkegaard had. He said, if I know how I want to end, if you know where you want to get to, like if I'm out hunting, and I know, okay, i got to get to the top of that mountain, then I keep my eyes on the top of that mountain as I start to climbing. And I get tired and I fall down and lay under a bush and pray for the rapture to come so I don't have to get the rest of the way up the mountain. <clears throat> but I keep going with my eyes focused where I want to be. The Bible says it like this, keep your eyes on the prize. If Jesus Christ is your prize, you don't lose your way. If something else is your prize, if there's some other thing that you're focused on, or that has your attention. Now, that's not the case. So here, in heaven, it, it, the picture is, man, they're with Him. They kept their eyes on the prize. They kept their eyes on the prize as they fulfilled the work that God had for them. In Psalm 118, verse 5, it says, Out of my distress I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me, and He set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. I keep my eyes on the prize. That's what the psalmist did. I want to keep my eyes on the prize. What does Jesus say? Jesus says to us at the end of the Gospel of Matthew... As he's given the great commission, what does he say? He says, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Why does he tell us that? I'm with you. I'm right here. Every step. Anybody have hard steps? Look, the, just because the Bible says that the 144,000 were sealed, 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel, there's several diff different descriptors we're going to look at in this chapter. 
Even as it, it doesn't say because they're sealed, they never went through hardship. Does it? Does it say because they're sealed, they were never hungry? What about cold, lonely? Were, or, or, is that part of a human condition? Or do we somehow think God's seal upon the 144,000 meant that life wasn't hard for them and they didn't have to keep their eyes on the prize? But just like Paul before them, or Peter, or any of the disciples really that you want to look at, they have to keep their eyes on the prize and keep putting one foot in front of the other. How is it that you win a race? How do you come to the end victorious? How do you arrive at your destination and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant? You keep your eyes focused on that and you just put one foot in front of the other. Every step, one step at a time. That's how you get there. What's the devil want us to do? Stop, look around behind us, think about our failures. Oh man, I messed up. I really blew that. I really messed up that part. There was a lot. There's a probably a fair portion of my life. <clears throat> I've got. I don't. I, I'm not counting them. Maybe Kathy will give them to you. But I something in, in somewhere in the neighborhood of 13 utterly uh, wasted years. My opinion, utterly wasted. Totally. If God was on the right hand, I was on the left. I don't get that back. And there was a period of time where I was spending so much time thinking about all the wasted time that I'm not doing anything in the present time. Right? That's what the devil uses, our failures. But what's God telling us? You're forgiven. Keep going. One foot in front of the other. And the 144,000, I would say, have that exact same reality. Are, are they going to be hurt by any of, the, any of the wrath of God poured out? No, they're not going to be hurt by any of that. Is, are, is mankind going to be able to kill them? No, because God said you can't. But it doesn't mean it's, not going, to be, it's going to be easy. 12,000 male, I believe, Jews who are never going to get married, who are never going to have a family. And by the way, both of those things are part of their culture, very important to them. But their eyes are going to be on a prize, greater than anything they're going to lose. And the exciting thing about chapter 14 is, it's telling us, they all made it. They're all here. They're all standing before the Lamb. They're all with Him. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For He has said, I will never leave you or... Yeah, you guys know it. Look at that. Sometimes you think you don't have them memorized, but you do. <laughs> he won't leave us. He won't forsake us. Don't put your trust in money. Don't put your, stuff, your, your trust in the shiny things we have. And we all got shiny stuff. And it's not bad to have... But that's not, my, that's not my, where my trust is at. My prize is Jesus Christ and my eyes firmly fixed on Him. Now I want you to look not only at the, at the presence of the Lamb, but then I also want you to see the place where they're standing. Where are they? They're standing where? Mount Zion, right? Mount Zion, Mount Zion. We hear Mount Zion talked about a lot. You also hear this phrase used a lot in, uh, in Israel and certain circles People who are called Zionists. You ever heard of that? A Zionist? Um, I'm, a, I'm a Zionist. Uh, probably not the same way they mean it. Politically, I'm a Zionist, which means I'm looking for the real king. 
for when he's king of kings. And he rules and reigns. I'm a Zionist and that I'm looking for Messiah. I want, I want to have my eyes on Messiah. So when they talk about Mount Zion, scripturally, we got to look at context. Because sometimes they're talking about Jerusalem. That's Mount Zion. Mount Zion is actually where David's uh, sarcophagus is laid. Where you, where you can go see the big stone uh, sarcophagus, flesh eater, that's what that means. A big box where really all that's left is David's bones, if they're even in there. And, and, but that's on Mount Zion, which is right on the side of Jerusalem, on the side of the, of the hillside of Jerusalem. But there's a Mount Zion that the Bible talks about that uses different language. And I think that's what we're looking at here. I want you to see it. In Hebrews 12.22, it says this, But you have come to Mount Zion, and then it describes it, to the city of the living God. Remember how we've been studying in the book of Hebrews that Abraham was looking for a city whose maker and builder was God? He was looking for something permanent. So he spent his whole life living in tents because he knew nothing's permanent unless God makes it. Right? So so this is what he's talking about. You've come to Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable... To, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. So where is this Mount Zion? That's in heaven, right? This one's in heaven. What about Psalm 2.6? He says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now if you read all of Psalm 2, Psalm 2 is what is called the messianic psalm. You guys heard that before? Which means it's a psalm or a song about Messiah. But... It was also used by the Jews every time a king took his throne. Every time the king took his throne, they would read Psalm 2. And they would or sing Psalm 2 over him. There were several that they would sing. But Psalm 2 is one of them. Why? That this is God's king. <laughs> but each king of Israel was pointing to who? To the real king, wasn't it? Every king, the good king was telling you this is a a small taste of what the Messiah is going to be like. The bad king made you want the good king, right? So that you would have that. Hopefully, the leadership that we have in our world today does the same thing for us. Does the same. Doesn't matter where we are in the political scale. Really, doesn't make any difference to me. Nothing's going to be okay till Jesus is sitting on the throne. I don't care who's in office or what they do. There, everybody lets us down. They do the best they can, and what, what they, the problem they have is the same problem we would have. What is it? They're broken, and so are you. We're broken, we're a mess, we have problems, <clears throat> we do dumb things. Is there anybody that doesn't, doesn't qualify for? Last I checked, we were all in that category, right? But when Jesus sits on a throne, he's king of kings. So Psalm 2 is looking forward prophetically to when Messiah is on the throne, sitting in heaven, like the song we're seeing right here sung by the 144,000. Who else is, is represented there? The 24 elders, which we talked about, I believe, is a church. And who else is there? The four living creatures. The cherubim and the seraphim, which are throne guardians. Who else is there? Who else is gathered around that throne? We, we have all the hosts of heaven, right? All the different angels gathered all around the throne, standing around the place where the Lamb is ruling as king. Psalm 2.6 points to it. Psalm 46.4 and 5 says, There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. What's he describing? 
He's describing Mount Zion. Psalm 48, 1 and 2. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Who's he talking about? He's not, he's not talking about David. He's talking about Jesus. Sitting on the throne. King of kings. Lord of lords. The ultimate authority. <clears throat> All on Mount Zion. Psalm 132. 13 and 14. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell. For I have desired it. The the call of God. This is, this is the language that God uses when he's talking about that place in time and geography where Jesus Christ will rule and reign as king. Mount Zion. Isaiah chapter 2, it says, It shall come to pass in the latter days <clears throat> that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And shall be lifted above the hills, and all the nations will flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So here, he's talking about that reality that Jerusalem is going to have some kind of an upheaval. Because the top of Jerusalem is lower than the top of Mount Olives. But what's it say here? It's going to be the highest of the hills. That everybody is going to come up to it. The idea of, of, of coming up to that city of God on Mount Zion. So what do we got? We got the presence of the Lamb at Mount Zion. That's what's going on. And then we have God's name on their foreheads, right? Well, let's, let's not miss the other part. It has His name. In the name of his father on their forehead. Right? How could we how could we do that? What do you think? What name would be both? So we've talked about this idea. There is only one Yahweh. Father, Son, Spirit, Triune God. I don't know. We'll find out. We'll be watching. If we're the 24 elders, we'll be sitting there and we'll see and we'll say, you can nudge me with the elbow. Yeah, you missed that one, Jackie. Or, <clears throat> or you can say, yep, looky there. But what is the point of it? The point isn't that they all got tattoos, is it? The 144,000 all went out to a tattoo sh- parlor and, and tattooed on their foreheads uh, Yahweh. What is he saying? Well, let's back up. Chapter 13, the devil had a mark too, didn't he? Right? Where did they put that mark? Back at her hands or on her forehead? There's symbolism in the Old Testament that talks about the priest and anointing the priest with blood. And it talks about anointing his toe and anointing his thumb. I'm trying to remember them all. Uh, I want to say anointing his, his lips, I think, was the third one. There's one more. But the... But the point of it, did you have it? Huh? Earlobe. So what is the point? Well, everything I do, everywhere I go, everything I say, whatever I hear, that it would be all marked with blood, right? That it would all be anointed 
by God. And so, the same thing here. What's what's the importance of the mark for the lost ones who take the mark? Who do they belong to? Satan, right? They belong to Satan. What does the mark say? Ownership. I own you. They took the mark. The mark that God wrote on the other foreheads, what's it say about the 144,000? You're mine. You're mine. I own you. You guys all saw Toy Story, right? What happened to the, to the bottom of, what, what's the cowboy? Were the kids? Woody, what did they write on the bottom of his foot? Why? Because he belonged to Andy, right? So the same way, when we belong to God, what's God doing? He's putting his name on us. Because the reality is that when we live our lives, that's what ought to come out, no? That's what ought to come out. He marks the 144,000. 144,000 have the name of God on their foreheads. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, I just want you to see this. It says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. (coughs) And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. What name was on the 144,000? The name of the Lamb and His Father. What name is written on those who overcome, according to the, the, the church in chapter 2 and 3? That's seven letters to seven churches. That's the word church used hundreds of times there. What's he, what's he saying? If you overcome what I write, my Father's name on you, and I put my new name on you. And so there's that ownership, right? That we belong to God. Is there... Is there any comfort for you in that, to know that you're, you belong to God? I kind of like it, I, you know, I wish I could see it. But then we'd all look at each other and say, you don't got the name yet. You better, you better get your act together, man. Well, my name, is, is it there? Oh, it just disappeared because I was full of pride. Oh, no. You know, but the idea, right, that, that security and knowing that, that we belong to God. In Revelation 7, verse 3 and 4, as the, uh, as the judgments are beginning to come, the trumpets are about to be, uh, to be blown, uh, the Lord says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads, right? So the idea is, on their, with a seal, what's the seal? Name of God, right? Ownership. I own you, God says. You're mine. You're mine. That's what's happening in chapter 7. We see it in chapter 14. But I also want you to consider it in your life. In, in 2 Corinthians one twenty two, it says, And who has also put his seal on us, and given us the Holy Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Down payment. Your mind. Your mind. This is, not, this is something that God does to all who belong to him. The hundred, I'm not saying the 144,000 are us, so I don't want you to be confused, but I am saying God puts his seal on you. He puts a seal on them. The difference is their seal keeps them from having uh, anybody be able to kill them. You and I, as far as I know, we don't have that protection yet. You want to find out? Go head out to the Sudan. Remember we had those guys here? You remember when we had those guys here? And the man, the, 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 I, I'll never forget the guy, I don't remember their names anymore, but... But he stood, they don't even carry guns no more. They just pray, bullets can't touch you. Bullets can't hit you guys. And, he, and they stand up in, in courage and bravery in the name of God and instill bravery in their soldiers. 
And, uh, and man, God does incredible things for them. Are they all protected? No. Sometimes a guy stands up and he takes a bullet. Sometimes a guy stands up and he don't. It doesn't make any difference either way. When God bid me come, he bid me come and die. So I'm dead already. Just a matter of time. Remember, Soren Kierkegaard said, if I consider how I want to end, that's going to change the way I walk, how I live. We already died. When we were baptized, what was our whole baptism? Wasn't that a a giant sign waving, saying, I'm dead with Christ, I died with Christ, and I've risen with Him, and the life I now live, I don't live for me, I live for who? For Him, it's His life, right? It's His life. So when the Lord bids us come, He bids us come and die. That's how we live. That ought to be our heart. That ought to be the attitude that comes from us. But now I want you to see, now you guys know why we're only doing five verses, huh? Now I want you to see verse 2 and 3. I want you to see the praise of God. Look at it. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So, when we look at it, I just want you to see the praise. The praise all around. Every time we, we see this group gathered up, whether it was with the 24 elders and all the angels and the four living creatures around the throne, what were they doing? Praising God, right? Glorifying Him. What do we see in here? Same thing. But now it's 144,000's turn, right? Now it's their turn. They are proclaiming. They are bringing that praise. And I want you to notice, we, when we read the Word, guys, we don't want to miss... The language of metaphor. What do I mean? It says a voice like that of many waters. You guys been over to Shoshone? Was it loud? So if I say like many waters, what am I telling you? It's loud. You ever heard God speak? Well, trust me, when we do and He's speaking from His throne, you're going to say, that's louder than Shoshone was. Because God's got a loud voice. He still can speak in a still, quiet voice, right? But the point he's making here, man, when God was talking, ooh, loud. Loud. There's a, there's a loud voice, sound of many waters. And the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. So, so it was like harpists. So it's musical. It's loud. It's musical. And then we get the new song, right? Then we get the new song. Look what he says. <laughs> and they were singing a new song before the throne. Before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So they're singing a new song. That word for new is, is fresh. It was something that was for them. Something that's for them. <clears throat> U2 made it fairly big on Psalm 40. Do you guys know that? No, no U2 fans in here? Yeah. Oh, Kathy. Sorry. <laughs> I should have said uh, something different. But no, I didn't know anybody else who had a Psalm 40 song. But the idea, sing a new song. I'll sing a new song. <clears throat> and here we have them singing out this new song, giving praise and glory to God. The other thing I want you to do, a lot of people struggle over who the 144,000 is. <clears throat> and I, I don't know, I guess I'm not smart enough. But the 
144,000 are redeemed from the word, the Greek word ek, which means out of the earth. So that would seem to indicate to me it can't be angels because they're redeemed out of the earth. They're redeemed. So I would say that that makes them people. And then when I hear the description, I have a hard time making them something other than people because they're Jews. So last I knew that was a kind of people that, uh, that would be redeemed from among the earth. So what's the purpose of God? Let's look at verse 4. It was these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So it sounds to me like we're talking about people. Us. I don't know how you get a different way. But here's what I want you to see. Several things in the purpose of God for these, for these guys. They have a specific role or purpose for God. Um, does God ever do that? Does God ever have a specific pers- uh, purpose for a person? <coughs> yeah, huh? That's not, that's not new, is it? There was this guy one time. He was like, worked for the Jewish mafia. And he was headed to Damascus to kill a bunch of people. And on his way there, he has an encounter with the God of the universe. His life radically changes. He becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. He writes 13 books, some would argue 14, out of the New Testament. And his name is Paul. Now, without God intervening in his life, what was he going to be? Yeah, but, but God, right? Is God, can God do that? You guys okay with that? I, I hope you're okay with that because he's God. He pretty much can do whatever he wants. And he'll be right in however he does it. But did God have a specific purpose for Paul? What about this? What about the night that Jesus stayed up and he prayed all night and then he went out and he chose 12 disciples? Did God have a purpose for those 12? Yeah, he does. Does he have a purpose for you? Now, Peter... Got a little wrapped around the axle with this. You remember? <laughs> Peter, after the denial, the Lord meets him in, in John. And he tells him, look, <clears throat> don't worry, Peter. One day you're going to be able to stand up for me. And he did, right? Peter is crucified for his faith in Christ. So, so he stands strong for Jesus Christ. Jesus says, one day men are going to take you and stretch you out where you don't want to go. And the Bible says this, he's told him about the way he was going to die. And then Peter looked over at John and said, what? What about him? I got to get crucified. What are you going to do to John? You remember what Jesus said? Basically, right? None of your, are you guys okay with that? Are you okay that God had a, a special uh, plan and purpose for Paul that was different than Peter, that was different than John, that's different than ours, that's different than 144,000? Are you all right with that? And... So what is, it, what is it that God's saying to Peter? The same question gets asked to them all. Or the same command. What is it? Come, follow me. So he says to Peter, Peter, don't worry about John. You follow me. Yeah, you got your walk. Somebody else has their walk. Somebody else has a different walk. It's all right. We got to be okay with that. So we need to recognize there's a special, there's a 
particular walk, a particular call that God has on the 144,000, right? And he has called them to a moral purity. Moral purity. These have not defiled themselves with women. The word for virgin that is used here is parthenos. Parthenos is an odd used word here because usually parthenos is used of women who are virgins. But it can on occasion be used for men. And here we have the obvious male being used here and then the word parthenos, that they're virgins. And the only way to... Now you can spiritualize it if you want. But you're making it do something it's, it's not intended to do. There's a, there's a, a word we're going to see in a couple of verses for that would be used for a spiritual concept of purity. We're going to see that in just a couple of minutes when they're blameless. Right? You guys tracking? So it's a little bit redundant. But I think God had a specific call for them. We're introduced to a similar call in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul says, I wish that you all were like me. And how was he at the time? Single. And what's his purpose in being single? Look, I'm not weighed down by a lot of other things. I can do what I need to do for the Lord. So he said it's not a command for everybody. But hey, if you're able, if you can do it, do it. He says, look, this is the call. I want you to see these 144,000, they're they're being called, uh, empowered, if you will. And that's important. Without a call, don't do it. That, that's a problem the Catholic Church got into, right? You make a command that all priests must be celibate, but if a man doesn't have the gift of celibacy, he should probably not try to be. Right? That creates problems. Struggles. So Paul, Paul talks about that too. He talks about those same concepts. So these guys, I think, are, are given a gift. A gift so that they're able to focus on uh, the things that... Uh, that God needs them to focus on, right? He's gonna, he, they're able to do what God wants them to do. So not only are they, do they have a moral purity, but they also are faithful in their practice. Look what it says. <clears throat> for they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Well, is there a different call for us? Is that not what we're supposed to be doing? Aren't we supposed to follow the Lamb? Jesus said, follow me, come follow me. We want to follow Him, we want to walk in obedience to Him. But these guys are faithful in that. They're faithful because they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Some of these guys probably spend their entire life alone going from place to place sharing the gospel, right? Because that's what God's accomplishing through the 144,000. In a moment, He's going to say they're the first fruits. That means they're the beginning of those whom God's going to save through the tribulation period. Now, people get, get a little wrapped around the axle about that, but I don't, I don't know what else you're going to do. The Bible tells us that there are those who are beheaded, right? The martyrs. So they are beheaded for what? Their faith and testimony in Jesus Christ. So that came from someplace, right? And remember last time I told you because of Revelation chapter 20 verse 4, I think they all die. I think that the, that the Antichrist is given power to wipe out all believers except for the remnant from Israel. We'll talk about them a little further uh, as we work our way through. He's going he's gonna to wipe them all out. Before that, you know, we've already done the, the deal, right? Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the church is everywhere. Chapter 4, the church is in heaven. Chapter 5, the church is in heaven. Chapter 6, the wrath of God starts. Chapter 19, the wrath of God's concluded. The kingdom comes and everybody agrees. Pre-mill, post-mill, all mill. We all are in the same place when we come to Revelation chapter 20. 
So, good news is, you don't got to agree with me. I, yeah, I know. <laughs> I've been working on John for like 80 years now. And I haven't got any closer. But I told him, I don't mind if he wants to be wrong. It's okay. <laughs> it doesn't bother me at all. <clears throat> and I told him, don't worry. If the rapture happens, I'll explain it to him on the way out. I know, me too. (laughs) So then, as we look at the, as we, again, as we look at that faithful practice, following the Lord, staying with Him, just like the call that Jesus made, that we want to be imitators of our Lord, right? So that's what we see them, that's what we see them doing. Next, we see the spiritual position. What is their spiritual position? They are redeemed from among mankind. I think that kind of makes them men. But you can go spend $50 for a commentary that will tell you that the 144,000 are angels. I, I choose not to spend my 50 bucks that way. But you can. You can. But right here, the scripture seems to say that they're redeemed from mankind, right? Yeah, they're saved from mankind. They are redeemed from mankind. This is their position. They are a first fruits unto God. Now, what was the first fruits? I don't have time to get into the first fruits. Leviticus chapter 23, you can read all about it. <coughs> so feel free to go to Leviticus 23. But when the harvest was coming, when you're expecting a big harvest, before you went out and harvested, you brought the first fruits to God and you said to God, Thank you for the harvest. So he says, 144,000, they're first fruits. Why? Because later on, we see them together with an innumerable host of believers. All gathered together, which is the harvest from the work that they did. There are first fruits, redeemed from among mankind, bringing um, men, women, and children to faith during the tribulation period. And it also says, Scripture says, in their mouth, there's no guile. There's no guile. The Bible tells us that no unclean thing will ever enter into heaven. Nothing. Now, you and I, we're kind of hung because we're all unclean. Right? But before we get there, we're putting on something. What are we putting on? We're putting on Jesus Christ. When I put on Jesus Christ, what happens? I become a, ju- I become a just man made perfect. That's what the scripture declares. Just man made perfect. By who? Jesus. Jesus makes me perfect. So these guys, man, there's, there's no deceit in their mouth. There's no lies. They're, they're, they are, are men fully committed, fully given over to following the Lord. And then remember I told you we're going to talk about their spiritual purity. It says, they are without amosos before the throne. Literally, they are without spot. They are without blemish. They are blameless before the throne. That is a word for spiritual purity. When you are bringing a sacrifice, what did it have to be? Perfect, right? Perfect. In order for us to stand before God, how do we have to be? Perfect. Yeah, we got to be perfect. So how do we achieve that perfection in our life? We achieve that perfection through our relationship with Jesus Christ. How did the 144,000? Jesus had a plan for them, a call for them. He called them out. He put his seal on them. He gave them a job to do. They did their job. They kept their eyes on the prize. They finished the race. And in Revelation chapter 14... They're in heaven. And in heaven they're singing the song about the glory of God. You and I, our, our life here, 
not going to be a whole lot different than the struggles that they face. There's going to be times where lonely, hungry, broken, hurt, sick, all the different things that we may face. But the, the call to us is the same. The call has gone out. We find ourselves now in a, in a period of time known as the church age, right? Where the, the call has gone out. The call that says, whosoever will may come. Now the call says that whosoever believes on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved, right? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This idea of, of this call going forward. And this, so, so it has been broadcast. Now as men respond, as men respond, then that seal of God is placed. And what's our, what's our role? Keep your eyes on the prize. Amen. Keep your eyes on the prize. Doesn't matter how we start, how's it matter? How we finish. How we finish. How we cross that finish line. And so here, that's the exciting thing for me. In this little section of Revelation chapter 14, we get to look at the finish line for 144,000. Well, he doesn't really show us a lot of the, the hard work part. He just shows us the beginning and the finish line. And praise God, what I hear in that is God saying, I am able to keep you. I am able to sustain you. The power of God working in our lives is all we need, right? The power of God working in our lives and keeping our eyes on the prize. And we too, like them, will finish well. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you that we can be gathered here before you. That we can open your word and study. God, I pray that, Father, you would indeed just allow your work to accomplish that perfect goal in our hearts and lives. As we look to you, God, to see, Lord, your fingerprints in our life, your call, your direction, Lord, that we would recognize and, and realize that you are moving in us now. <clears throat> we can read about those in the past who went before us, through whom the power of God worked, God, that you were able to keep them, that you were able to save them, that you were able to use them. We can look to the future, to those maybe who aren't even here yet, that are going to be chosen by God to fulfill a particular purpose and you show us their beginning and you show us their end Lord and you show us this so that we can know so that we can say yes I can because you can I am able because you are able that we can accomplish the things God that you're calling us to solely because of the power of God working in us for he is able to do abundantly above all we can ask or imagine according to the spirit that works within us. So Lord God, we pray that you would do a perfect work in us as we put our eyes on you. As we keep our eyes on the prize. And as we keep putting one foot in front of the other. Until we see you face to face, may we be found faithful in Jesus' name. Amen.